Hello and welcome to the Classical Music Pod. In today's episode, Leos Janacek gives us reasons to be hopeful, even if you're over 65. I talk to our favourite harpsichordist about the power of milky tea and the future of music listening from a startup in Israel. After the overwhelming success of last week's trial news quiz, we've decided to make it a regular feature. So I'm back with another set of questions for Sam, who is waiting patiently on the other end of the phone line. How are you doing, Sam? I'm doing very well. Hit me with your questions, Tim. Okay, let's start with something chewy. Which major streaming platform has this month offered to boost artists' algorithm placement? if they accept reduced royalties? Well, it won't be our friends at Vialma, who are very nice classical music streaming servers. I bet it's those green and black bastards Spotify, isn't it? And actually, I have a problem with this, because green and black, I just used to associate that with delicious chocolate, and now Mm -hmm. I have to connect it to the collapse of funding structures for recording artists. So So I never liked green and black, but, but fair enough. I accept, I accept your complaint. It's an additional criticism that not only are they not sorting out people's royalties properly, they are also uh, causing me pain by association. But is it Spotify? It is Spotify. What they are calling an experiment will affect the autoplay feature and playlists like Artist Radio. And predictably, there's been a massive backlash among artists most of whom were already struggling to cover bills yeah. with streaming income and remember that to earn 15 dollars an hour a month you need to be getting about seven hundred thousand monthly streams mm. and right now there's no money to be made from playing live either uh, actually the scheme has been compared to the 1950s payola scandal i don't know if you've heard of that I where djs were paid it, uh, DJs were paid to play particular songs on the radio and it was mm. a scandal and it's now illegal. Yeah. And it's only going to favour those at the top of the pyramid who can afford to take that kind of initial hit to their incomes, isn't it? It's going to push more music by the big boys and less by anyone who's an up-and-comer. Good old mm-hmm. uh, neoliberal opportunism at its best. Yes, indeed. Moving on. What genre has officially been declared music? By a German court. Ah. Uh, I had a thought all the big ones have been taken, haven't they? But um, <laughs> is it the strange sounds of your tummy whilst you're digesting things? Uh, tummy music. Nah, that's a good try. Or I like that. maybe is it... Um, I've got a serious guess. Is it the crowd noises that, that they're pumping in everywhere? Sort of to avoid some sort of royalty, they declare it music rather than some other thing. 
that's a really interesting. I mean, it's much more prosaic than that. It's actually techno. What? It wasn't techno already? Yeah. Uh, so the financial high court in Munich has decreed that techno uh, venues will no longer have to pay the 19% VAT rate that usually applies to clubs. Instead, they'll pay a reduced concert hall rate of 7%. So according to German law, the tax break applies only to venues where the primary reason for attendance is the music. And after an appeal to the federal high court by various techno venues, including the legendary Berghain, it was found that patrons do indeed attend primarily to hear DJs who, in quotes, perform their own pieces of music using instruments in the broadest sense to create sound sequences with their own character. It's a very German description. QED, techno is music. Oh, well, I mean, if it can inspire Thomas Adders to write Azalea, then it can definitely... I mean, it must be. It is music. I know, yeah. Surely. It's a slightly anal definition. Staying in Europe for a second... Well, until... January, at least, please. Yeah, very good. Which country is hosting its first ever production of Richard Strauss's Elektra on the 26th of November? There's a clue here. We both have a soft spot for this country. Ah, well, we've got a lot of soft spots. We frequently get excited about Latvia. Yeah, we do. Well, there's the big anniversary of independence coming up. 2021 but no it's not latvia uh, not latvia is it bulgaria my favorite national breakfast yes it is bulgaria the sofia national opera which is just down the road from the bulgaria hall where you and i saw the sofia philharmonic give that concert consisting entirely of waltzes is staging (laughs) (laughs) it was bizarre they are staging strauss's 1909 drama with american conductor evan alexis christ which is very exciting great name (laughs) what a name christ is coming moving on now sam would you say donations to uk performing arts organizations from individuals have risen or fallen during the pandemic Oh, bit of higher or lower. I think that they've hopefully gone up because the kind of people who are making those big philanthropic donations to arts organisations probably are suffering slightly less with uh, all the COVID breakdown. You know, your Jeff Bezos is probably coming out of this ahead rather than behind. Hopefully they're sharing the wealth and looking after the arts when it needs it most. No, I'm afraid you're absolutely wrong. (laughs) According to a report by TRG Arts, it's almost collapsed donations. It's down 35%, or it was down 35% in the first nine months of 2020, and down 75% in June to September. God, that is not good news. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of encouraging exceptions in the UK. Vivian Duffield's Claw Duffield Foundation, they donated 2.5 million uh, and there's a young Russian couple called Elena and Alex Gecko who donated one and a half million to the London Symphony Orchestra. Great. Richard Morrison argued in the Times last week in a really good piece, if the arts are going to survive what economists are calling the long tail of COVID, mm. then we're going to need to become less squeamish about receiving handouts from people like the Gurkos and hope more people like them do actually end up emptying their pockets because god knows oliver dowden's not going to do it no on the subject of art relief who conducted a live stream concert at the berlin Staatsoper for the benefit of the emergency relief fund of the german orchestra foundation this weekend uh could it be someone generous and smiley like kirill petrenko 
No, it was Daniel Barenboim. Ah, oh, well, he's pretty generous and smiley too. Yeah, I think so. Apparently, it was a Beethoven Bonanza featuring the fourth piano concerto with Andrew Schiff as soloists and the Eroica Symphony. Can you guess, by the way, which pieces of Beethoven the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, chose for his Desert Island Discs last week? Well, Sir Keir would be a great guest, wouldn't he? Let's let's keep holding out for that one. Uh, he had the Emperor Concerto at his wedding. I knew that already. Mm-hmm. So I guess he'll put down a movement of that. I think you told me once that he'd learnt the violin with Fatboy Slim. So maybe yes. a bit of the violin concerto? One right, one wrong. It, uh, Emperor Concerto, certainly. And the Pastoral Symphony, number six. Mm. Last question. A new technology called sound beaming has been developed by Israeli company Noveto Systems. What do you think that entails? They sound like the baddies in Time Splitters. Noveto. Uh, mm. I hope that sound beaming involves... I don't know, something to do with smiling. Maybe you smile at a screen and it plays you an appropriately... Yeah, only plays you the music if you look cheerful at it or something. It's a nice thought. Even the CEO, Christoph Ramstein, finds it hard to put the concept into words. <laughs> a sound beamer is a desktop device that directs 3D sound directly to a listener without the need for headphones and without disturbing anyone else. Apparently it locates and tracks the ear position, sending audio via ultrasonic waves to create sound pockets by the user's ears. That is mental. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's... Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't got an out for that. That's just a terrifying window into the future. Yeah. I I mean, I think other than it just being a really futuristic, wacky, nerdy concept, the main advantage is that you can hear other sounds in the room just as clearly. I mean, and there's not that much practical use for it, but it's very cool. It's very cool. And apparently a version will be ready for consumer release in time for Christmas 2021. So sci-fi fans, you got a year to get saving. (laughs) Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, 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 meaninglessness, purposeful, meaninglessness, I should say. Classical music pod, I should say. Tim, my favourite American maths professor, musical satirist and LSD enthusiast, Tom Lehrer, used to do a really nice gag about Mozart. Oh yeah, what is it? He'd introduce his parody aria by saying, just think, by the time Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for three years. But Sam, you don't need to worry about that, you're not that old. (laughs) Thanks. No, uh, mine would be, by the time Mozart was my age, he'd written several of the world's best love operas and 36 symphonies. Yeah, but that kind of comparison could get one down. It could. And we don't need that kind of bad news right now. What we need is a little hope. And it feels like we're finally getting some. Pfizer have finally given a glimpse of a way out of the COVID maze. An advert for American dentistry, Joe Biden, overcame the current incumbent of the White House in the US election. The all-too-immersive piece of apocalyptic theatre that is the year 2020 appears to be entering its final act. Today, I'm going to share with you my most hopeful composer and their most hopeful piece.
analysis. Leos Janacek is the perfect repost to suggestions that if you're not writing masterworks by your mid-teens, you should retrain in cyber. The late 19th century, early 20th century Czech organist, composer and ethnographer is that rarest of things, an anti-prodigy. What, somebody who hates a fire starter? Someone who doesn't really write anything of note until the age of 65. Whoa. So when most of us are expecting to be collecting our pensions, he was hitting his stride. Yeah. What brought on this sudden burst of creativity? Well, no one is sure, of course. Uh, the creative process is a mystery. But it may have been that he was inspired by a woman called Camilla Stoslova, 38 years his junior. Mm. And was this romantic inspiration reciprocated? They don't seem to have been in a relationship, uh, or at least not a romantic relationship. Janacek's wife, Zdenka, certainly didn't seem troubled by it. But there was an absurd amount of letter writing going on, mostly by the composer to Camilla, and mostly about the logistics of transporting bread. Crumbs. But why does this give you hope, Sam? Well, Janacek is the patron saint of all those who have to keep practising, keep writing and rewriting. In the last decade or so of his life, a wiggly, windy career path that involved collecting folk songs and teaching at the organ school in his hometown of Brno and working as a theorist, Janacek suddenly burst onto the biggest stages with his opera Yennefer. And from there he wrote a succession of pieces that stand comparison with any of the 20th century's greats. Mm, a late bloomer. And it's one of those late masterpieces we're going to focus on today, his Sinfonietta. Sinfonietta was written in just three weeks during 1926 and is in five movements, each given the title of a landmark in Bruno. Listen to the unusual edition of 13 Extra Brass Players. Yana, mm, check this out. like the best news intro ever. Yeah, you can imagine Kathy Newman coming in after that. If that rainbow of brass colour wasn't enough to get you feeling upbeat, then I've got a micro-musical reason and a macro-musical reason to do so. Mm, that's one if you zoom in and one if you zoom out. Provided you accept that you must never mention the word zoom again, I agree. Okay, deal. If we focus in, the brass players are playing some pretty aspirational figures, each one reaching higher than the last. And these haven't come out of nowhere. They're actually connected to the foundation of the work, the very beginning, the music, the tuba and novelty bass trumpet play right from the off. Turn this upside down. And take a couple of notes out of this. and you've got basically the same thing. Mm. Whilst the repeated motifs stretch higher and reach higher, they're still connected to where they've come from. Indeed, encapsulating the sentiment of one early 21st century composer who put it very concisely. Jennifer Lopez of the Bronx, much like these motifs of Brno, grew, added adornment, but remained connected to where she came from. 
And does that interconnectivity continue across the movements? Well, depending on how hard you look, yes. Some are obvious, like this moment from the fifth movement, which foreshadows a full return of the opening fanfares. It's that ya-da-da that's crucial here. Some are a little more tenuous, using a touch of decoration and maintaining the intervallic gaps between the notes, but changing the rhythms and transposing them, like in the third movement. And if you're prepared to get tenuous, then maybe this, also from the third movement. can be boiled down to a few key notes that I've played in the bass. Hmm. You've not mentioned the two even-numbered movements there, Sam. Do they not come from the same place? Well, this is where we get our big reason for hope. The second movement in particular doesn't at first sight, or first listen, appear to fit with the rest. Is that anything to do with it being named after the old castle? Quite possibly. Bruno's castle isn't a scenic Baron von Bombust castle. Apparently it looms rather ominously over the town, and it's mostly been used as a prison. I'm told that unlike Prague, it doesn't have a lovely long Kingsway winding down into the town. And this old castle, how does it not fit musically? Well, it's a very strange bit of composing, resting mostly on a harmonic movement of here to here, which feels quite odd, and it includes motives like this, which pointedly contradict the central motif for the work. feeling that hopeful yet. Well, clever old Janacek saves the moment of resolution for the very end of the work, the coda of the fifth movement, in fact, by bringing together both sides of this musical argument. A sort of unifying centrist celebration, you'd say. They're all the rage right now, I hear. Janacek's musical resolution is to solve this harmonic tension by turning it into a motif and letting it aim higher, up to an F. The harmonic progression he adds is this, which includes this familiar line. Ah, so he unites the two. He does, and transforms the place he is living, Berno, through the music, making the old castle into something that can be as aspirational and as much a part of the town as any other. Plus, it's even a nod to Vorjak's Ninth Symphony, written in 1893, which is where Janacek is intellectually coming from. Literally, he used to ask Vorjak's advice on composing when they were both living in Prague. Mmm, that is some good, big-scale sensation of hope music. I think so. And if, over the remaining weeks of lockdown, you're feeling a little in need of some geeing up, then might I suggest popping on Janacek's Sinfonietta. You might be over 65, but Janacek reminds us your best work might still be ahead of you. You might feel that you can't do a lot right now, but Janacek shows us that even from the smallest of hopeful gestures can grow a transformational force that changes the world around you for the better. Mm, all it takes is some obsessive letters about bread. I don't want to hear none of that. Ugh, I was on a roll. <laughs>
composer fact file, Leos Janacek. Born 1854, Hukvaldi in modern Czech Republic. His father was a schoolteacher and church organist. Age 10, he was sent to Bruno, where he sang in the prestigious Abbey Choir and learned the organ. He attended organ school in Prague, where he was expelled for publishing criticism of his teacher. The same teacher, Skuhersky, intervened and Janacek was re-enrolled, graduating top of his class. He founded the Brno Conservatory after years of teaching music and conducting amateur groups. From the mid-1880s, he began collecting folk songs, becoming one of the first ethnographers to use photographs and an Edison phonograph to record folk music. His opera Yennefer centers on the death of a child. Janacek's own daughter Olga died in 1902. A revised version of the opera was performed in Prague in 1916, igniting his compositional career. The obsession with Camilla Stoslova led to many works, perhaps most directly his second string quartet, Intimate Letters. His first string quartet was inspired by Tolstoy's novel, the Kreutzer Sonata. While searching for Camilla Stoslova's son, Otto, in the woods, he caught a chill, which developed into pneumonia. He died on the 12th of August, 1928. Sir Charles McCarris, the Australian conductor who helped promote Janacek's works on the world's opera stages, described his style as... Completely new and original, different from anything else, and impossible to pin down to any other style. You got to pick a pocket or two. Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man, written in 1942. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's Fanfare for the Common Man, written in 1977. Alan Hawkshaw's Best Endeavours, otherwise known as the Channel 4 News Theme, written in 1984. You got to pick a pocket or two. Incidentally, we also recommend Joan Towers' Six Fanfares for the Uncommon Woman the first of which, written in 1986, is dedicated to Marin Olsop and will be broadcast live on BBC Radio 3 on the 19th of November, performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Sam, you've recently had a chat with another Prague-based musician. I have. Uh, it's been a Czech episode. Mahan Esfahani is the first and only harpsichord player to have been a BBC New Generation artist. He was a nominee for Gramophone's Artist of the Year in 2014, 15 and 17 and was on the shortlist as Instrumentalist of the Year for the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards in 2013 and 2019. He's pretty handy on the keys then. Certainly. And I would recommend listening to his great NPR Tiny Desk concert that we mentioned uh, in the course of the interview. It's a really good way to hear a snapshot of the range of 
repertoire he's playing at the moment. I'll pop a link for that in the description below. Okay, so what did you talk about? I originally reached out to Mahan just because I was really enjoying his wit and opinion on Twitter. So I wanted to hear what he thought on just about as much as possible, really. We covered how he ended up playing his unusual instrument in the first place and the benefits of a broad musical education. But also he gave me a lot to think about when talking about the role of the musician at the moment and its place within society. Sounds chunky. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But we started off with a Wi-Fi malfunction and talk of snacks. Yeah, let's start again. I'll ask you the same question and you have to react as though it's absolutely hilarious for again. We had a quick chat a couple of weeks ago and you were running around in the middle of the afternoon recording a radio programme on an empty stomach, which I personally cannot possibly do. I have to run on mini eggs, the little Cadbury mini eggs whenever I'm doing anything. Can you tell us what the radio programme might be about and what your favourite mid-recording session snack is? Right. Um, well, the show doesn't have a title yet, but it's two episodes about composers I don't like. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I talk with someone who is an exponent of that composer's work, and they tell me, you know, why they think I'm wrong, and we kind of have a back and forth, basically. Oh, fantastic. So it's a kind of, you know, classical music morality play, if you like. Um, and what is my favorite mid-recording snack? Well, if I'm recording music... Hmm. Um, it's the only time that I put milk in tea, which is a disgusting habit I learned in England many years ago when I started recording at the BBC because someone would come around the recording sessions and bring tea, which is not done anymore. Um, mm. But otherwise, I just drink tea without milk, which is the proper way to drink it. Is there a link between, do you still have to have the milk in the tea now, even though the BBC people aren't bringing it around? The milk in the tea is only when I'm recording music. It reminds me of all those BBC sessions. Yeah, find that uh, emotional space connected to Yes, lactose. it sort of has a productive quality associated <laughs> with it because it's so unpleasant. <laughs> You're no longer based in the UK, so hopefully fewer rubbish cups of tea. Instead, living in Prague, what first drew you over there? Uh, well, I wanted to deepen my skills as a harpsichordist. I had already started my professional career living in London and, um, but I really wanted to study with Zuzana Rushkova, who was a great harpsichordist. I say was, because sadly she died three mm. years ago. But I thought, you know, I was always going from London to there and sort of commuting, if you like. And then at some point I looked at Prague and I thought, well, this is cheaper and easier and, you know, more central. And I wanted to, you know, be more involved in Central Europe mm. um, for various reasons. So I thought, well, this, I'll give this a go and I'll see what happens. Sure. And and then I, you know, met, made friends and I stayed. Yeah. And uh, have you been able to do any of the things that still make it feel like home in the last six months? Have there been? Well, I have. I have been at home. So that is, in a sense, feeling though, as though one is at home. I don't understand mm. what you mean. Well, I think for me, yeah, I'm in South London at the moment. And the thing that really makes it feel like I'm at home might be walking around Brockwell Park or something and that looking across a green towards a cityscape there's just that something that feels quintessentially South London about that well I mean home home is Prague I mean uh, you know it feels like home if I'm practicing I mean that's you know otherwise that there's I don't I don't have um uh you know I don't have sort of associations with home because I nowhere feels like home as such Okay. Uh, so, you know, wherever I pitch my tent is home. The 
approach of yeah as you say someone who's moving around the whole time you've got a, a slightly different insight into how europe is is handling the current situation have you noticed a distinct difference between what say you were able to achieve at wigmore under their current parameters and your broadcast there or what they're able to achieve on the continent in terms of maybe creative solutions to the issues we're facing at the moment I couldn't rightly say. I mean, what Wigmore or places like Barbican can have done is so um, unique mm. uh, in that they're dealing with a very difficult situation that I don't think you can make it a British or a European thing. I think it's in the hands of individual people. Mm. Um, some individuals are stepping up and others are, you know, either you're in, you're in give mode or you're in receive mode. And I think in a time of this, like this pandemic, we don't want to be in receive mode. I think that's very dangerous. Mm. Um, one has to be in sort of proactive mode. Um, there is a sort of uh, trend, I would say, particularly in American thinking, which is, you know, you know, wellness is important. Self-care is important. Don't feel the need to be productive. I mean, if you're not productive now, when are you going to be productive, right? Um <laughs> It was a good time for me. I learned a lot of music, a lot of music that I really needed to learn. You know, mm. a lot of music that I, I think I, I think that I knew, but I needed to focus on. You know, yeah. I think I needed to dedicate a different level of concentration to. Um, you know, and I did other things, learned other things, studied other things, read read a lot of mm. books which I hadn't. And uh, you know, so so I, I believe in, uh, you know, I believe in per personal initiative. Yeah, I think there's definitely something about if you're going to play a keyboard instrument, you've got to have a bit of that self-motivating energy, haven't you? I mean, yeah. uh, you can't just turn it to windows. It's very solitary. Yeah, absolutely. The I'm thinking about that um, productivity, but was there anything you deliberately did to sort of punctuate that and just chill out? Well, I got good sleep. <laughs> first time in a while, or that's pretty yes, first time in over ten years, and that's really healthy. If you get good sleep, you you know your skin is better. It helps you you know stay in shape, um, in a better mood. You know, renovate an apartment. Ah, oh. uh, you know, there's ways to kind of deflate, go to the park, but you know, music fundamentally itself is both a productive activity and, a, and an activity which deflates. You know, in the in the positive sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wondered if you could jump us back to the beginning of that self-motivating journey and how you came to the harpsichord because it it now feels inevitable that you are you know mr harpsichord but we all have to arrive at our instrument uh well my father played piano so mm -hmm. you know i played piano because it was just what we did um but also you know i saw, i remember in school kids who played got piano lessons so i thought well, i'd quite like to be able to play mm -hmm. piano funny it was a matter of i had music in me but I didn't have any physical way of getting it out. So I thought, well, maybe I could become a composer. You uh -huh. know? Um, but so playing piano was just a way of getting out of me what I always felt was there. Uh, you know, in that sense, the piano is the most complete of instruments, hmm. right? You can play multiple parts. And, you know, in terms of range, there's kind of no restrictions on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has other shortcomings, but still. And harpsichord, well, I just heard a recording of it when I was a kid, and I thought, well, I'd like to spend time with this. But I didn't really get to play one until I was about 17. Right. Um, you know, it's not harpsichord. It's not something you come across easily. 
No, it's, you know, it's not flute and wind band, is it? It's kind of, you've got to seek it out a little bit. Exactly. By the way, I played in wind band. I played tuba. I played, yeah. you know, played oh. violin, orchestra. I played the recorder. I played, you know, I play, I sang. Mm. I did other things. But Do you still think in those terms when, you know, this is a, a tuba color to the bass line or something? Has that... Is there well, still an influence the there? Well, I think to look at it is that any musical endeavor, I would say particularly singing, refines one's abstract musical sensibilities. Uh, I mean, that's why the French teach solfege between, before people study an instrument, right? I have criticisms of the French system, but I think that, you know, what it does is that it hones your general musical sensibilities, your general musical instincts, you know, and then so when you take up an instrument, well, it's just a matter of translating those instincts onto whatever you have. You know, that's the way that I would look at it. Yes, of course, one naturally thinks of one's musical experiences in playing the instrument. But I mean, I never you know, played the oboe, but obviously thinking of the oboe and its articulation is one thing that I would think of, right, for example. Yeah. So I think it. I think it's something much more, uh, you know, much more general than that. Yeah, I used to get a lot as a kid growing up playing the trumpet from my sister playing the violin and hearing another color be developed and thinking what can i what can i magpie from that into my own um, exactly my own thinking you know what is the relationship of that instrument to maintaining pitch to messing around with pitch to uh you know to phrasing and uh you know, so you the more you listen i mean there's a reason why composers should be able to play every instrument <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, th there's a, a fantastic interview with Niall Rogers where he talks about moving school every six weeks and um, they just hand him a new instrument every six weeks and that's how he ends up writing all the, the fantastic instrumental parts for Chic. Is he's just, he has played every instrument for about six weeks and so he can write for anybody. But I digress. I heard you started playing the harpsichord to annoy your dad. I mean, he thought the harpsichord was annoying so I played it, but... <laughs> That's roughly true, I suppose. I brought it up because I have a harpsichord dad-related story as well, and I wondered if I could get your feedback on it. Well, he, um, my dad was at, a, I think must have been a car boot sale, and sent me a message saying, do you want a harpsichord? There's one here for 100 quid. At and a I car said, boot sale? I'm not sure if it was a car boot sale, but I'm not sure where else you pick up a 100-pound harpsichord. He said, yeah, and he brought back this um, big box of sort of Ikea bits, and we've been putting it together. Ever since, and so we've now got this monster instrument that is fifty percent wardrobe, and I'm just about, I think, in a place to start playing it. And I wondered if you've got any recommendations for repertoire or tips for the beginner harpsichord convert. Well, how much keyboard playing did you do beforehand? Oh, I've got my grade eight piano. I'm not, you know, a super whiz, but I can, you know, get through some bits. Well, of you may as you may as well start with the Purcell Suites. You know, and the and the Bach inventions and symphonias, and well, you just sort of go from there, really. I love the the rattle, the the yeah. liveliness of the the instrument. So do I. There's a very sort of physical, living quality of it. You know, you hear all the mechanisms. Obviously, you know, one transcends that, mm. artistically speaking. But yeah, I mean, that is that is attracting. It feels like a very live instrument, in the sense that it's lively. Yeah. Uh, no, and I, I find that very attractive. And it's started me on the course of dispelling a couple of harpsichord myths because I, like most British kids, was taught the GCSE history of the harpsichord, which is that you know you can't influence how loud it is depending on how you touch it, and that it was just completely a relic of a certain period. So, can we set the record straight 
Um, well, I've already set the record straight with 12 years of concerts and recording, so I don't see I don't see what record needs to be set straight. I mean, I don't. Are you telling me? or Are you asking? I'm asking you how how do you achieve those ranges of dynamics? Because it's not purely by touch, is it? Uh, it's by a variety of things. Touch, time. Mm. Time is very important. You know, time is how we affect, um, you know, dynamics, so to speak, in our speaking. Yeah. Right? You know, the space that we put between words and between phrases. You know, that's pretty much it, really. I mean, I think when we talk about dynamics, the word that we're looking for, and no doubt you know this as a musician, the word that we're looking for is tonic dynamic, which is mm. to say that force creates a change in volume, which is actually a very small subset of the umbrella of what we call dynamics. But, you know, for most instruments, I mean, the recorder, um, to a great extent, even instruments like the oboe, English horn, even the horn, that's, we're, we're, we're asking the wrong question, I think. Not, not you, I know you know better. But I mean, I think that we're asking the wrong question when we talk about dynamics. But other than that, I mean, I've already set the, set the record straight, so... We can we can go and listen to the evidence. Go and listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that recording journey that you've been on that we can all go and hear is dispelling that second myth that it's a instrument for older repertoire. I was blown away by the I think it's in the beginning of your NPR Tiny Desk concert, which I really enjoyed, uh, where you say there are fifty modern concertos for the harpsichord, and I just more than that. Yeah, I try and go to a fair number of concerts and. It's a real rarity in comparison to so much of the repertoire that we encounter. Um, is that a lack of practitioners' appetite in the audience in the period that it was the 20th century, maybe 21st I th century? I think it has as much audience and as many practitioners as it needs. Sure. Yeah, you know, I don't see. I don't. It's not. It doesn't feel neglected to me. You know. No, it has. A very healthy repertoire growing. Um, it has a very good old repertoire, you know, obviously. Yeah. Um, and it has as many listeners as it needs. And I have as much work as I need. And <laughs> I couldn't intelligently. Oh, I think I think it. I think the harpsichord's been fine. Well, I'm sure that you're a big part of that. I don't think so. I think that I think that people, if they're inclined to listen to it, they'll listen to it. You know. And the thing is, people will listen if, they, if people listen to good playing. And they still decide that they don't like it. Well, you know, chances are that they weren't that inclined to it in the first place. Do you think that everybody is being asked to do a Tiny Desk concert, which has a different kind of reach and will expose different people to that quality of, you know, that kind of playing? I don't know. The only Tiny Desk concert I've seen um, was the band Alabama Shakes, which I really liked. So I don't know. My, my housemate is sitting here. She thinks I'm being a hard ass on these questions. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> you know, I can handle it. I don't really know. I just watch the I just yeah. watch the pop ones. I don't watch the classical ones. I couldn't. No, but I mean that's kind of what I mean is that they. If my you dad were... was also really excited that I did Tiny Desk because he saw Jackson Brown on it. So <laughs> you know, but otherwise I don't. I don't know. One of them gets us to do Tiny Desk. But I mean that's, I suppose, almost what I'm saying is that you know, you're entering a sphere where not a lot of classical artists get to tread and you'll come up on a whole lot of people's YouTube algorithms that might just go, oh, that's, uh, you know. Yeah, but that, you, the more YouTube algorithms you come up in, you know, that means the more nasty comments on YouTube you get. Is that true? Oh, my God, of course. Not that I look. <laughs> I don't look. You know, comment sections are for crazies. But, well, hey, you know, we're in the middle of, uh, you know, all this stuff going on in politics, so you know comment sections are full of crazies. I have dipped my toe. 
I'll put it to you this way. I think we live in a time where everything is available, you know, mm -hmm. like information, right? Yeah. Who would have thought of something like Wikipedia 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know? Yeah. So I think people, people will come to the conclusion of what they want to listen, what they don't want to listen to. And, you know, as long as we get to survive and pay our way and not go hungry, then, mm. you know, one will continue doing it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't need to be coy about the question. I just think that um, it reminds me of they asked Chow and Lai, they said, what do you think are the effects of the French Revolution? He said, it's too early to tell. You know, I don't know what the, I don't know what, these are all just guesses what the, momentum of classical music is right now i think i think we mm -hmm. won't know until 30 40 50 years from now you know is if something has fewer people doesn't necessarily have you know less value should it not exist right like that's a that's a common criticism made of opera in the united states yeah. is that supposedly it's for an elite of course that the notion that it is for an elite is is, is to some extent an absurd premise but um you know because then from that naturally in the american frame of mind the question is you know, oh, then should we be should we be supporting it? You know, should we, should it be taking up this many resources? Mm. Slippery slope. So, in a way, it's healthier to not make claims for it. Yeah, I think. And that's... if you don't make claims for it, then you know when the you know what hits the fan, <laughs> no one will come looking for you. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't know. That's what I think. And just thinking about areas that you you do get to influence then and you know you're able to work with uh contemporary composers is there anyone you're you know loving working with at the moment or oh well ben, ben Sorensen just sent me the last two movements of his concerto that he wrote for me so that's really exciting i mean i haven't haven't looked at it yet obviously <laughs> but uh it's exciting uh, you know, that it's somewhere yeah super exciting i mean i have the pdf so i'll print it out when i go home and um yeah no that i think actually working with composers is the most rewarding because you're tapping into people of you know ideally into people with greatly refined, developed musical minds. You know, people, composers, I always look at composers, great composers, and I say, their musical sensibilities are much more advanced than mine are. So it's very lucky mm. to be in contact with them. You know, you learn a lot. That's, yeah, uh, a healthy approach. But then when you're working out who to, um, who to program, who to, maybe you're in a position to work out who you ask to write you a piece, yeah. Are you feeling a responsibility to play a part in shifting any of those things so that you're not just playing music by middle-class white guys? Or is that... Uh, oh, I, I wasn't aware I was playing music by middle-class white guys. Well, uh, not that you personally are, but, you know, there. if we think there needs to be a degree of movement towards uh, composers who aren't white men in the world and hear some other voices, you're in a position where you can have some influence on that. Do you feel that responsibility to have that influence? I have I have commissioned the composers that I want to. It happens. It just so happens that a number of them are from under from underrepresented groups, but I wasn't thinking that when they were commissioned. Yeah, I appreciate that. And well, I personally wish that a hundred years ago, uh, the people then hadn't been continuing to oppress this group or minority or gender, and uh, that we were just able to exist in a world where we just play music by exactly all the people we like. Yeah, I have no opinion sure. on that. Uh, if I wanted to go into social engineering, I would finish uh, my law degree and I would become a human rights lawyer. You know, my the way I see it is that your change is affected by how you treat people, not, not by what you say. 
I have commissioned a diverse range of composers. It wasn't done intentionally other than uh, it was intentional to commission good music. But beyond that, you know, I'm not a, I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm not a social worker. Uh, yeah, I'm not, you know, the, the, the notion that, you know, because we want equality of outcome, that I'm some sort of music playing machine is just a false premise. You know, my values are measured by how I treat others. Mm-hmm. And I treat people with, you know, equality and equanimity and, and respect. That's much more important than quotas. I don't think quotas reflect how you treat people. I agree with you on that wholeheartedly. I suppose it's just um, you finding yourself in um, a more influential position than, than some. I suppose it's do, fee- do people put that responsibility on you? Do they come to you to try and um, change those things? No. And I'm not in a position of responsibility. When I play something that basically looks like the piano that Mickey Mouse plays in the Disneyland parade, right? Like what responsibility <laughs> do I have? No, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's a place of responsibility. Having said that, I'm responsible to good music. And I think all kinds of people have good music to say. But, you know, beyond that, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's very funny that the kinds of people who've been making decisions in the music industry tend to be the same people that they've always been. And now they put the onus of responsibility on someone like me. Well, no, excuse me, the onus of responsibility was on them. You know, now they're just changing their vocabulary and claiming that things have changed. I think it has changed. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I think that's partly what I was talking about with the sensation of wishing that, you know, people 100 years ago had started making change then or, you know, should have taken responsibility for it then rather than continuing to kick it down the road. Well, when? At the time of Bach? Which who who was were, were they black people in the time of Bach in, in that part of like what should Bach have stepped aside so that a composer of color writes a cantata? I mean, it's an absurd notion. No, sure, and I don't. I mean, if just my personal two cents on this is that you you never ask Bach to step aside because Bach is a is a genius. Your well, today you would ask today you would ask Bach to step aside. Well, today, you, if if Bach were a living composer, you would ask him to step aside. Well, I I personally wouldn't. I think the thing that is underspoken about maybe is is the middle rank of people occupying positions who are elevated through privileges perhaps and so bark doesn't need any help no people of quality need help too we live currently in a, in a situation with certain public broadcasters that should know better mm. and publicly supported musical institutions that shall remain nameless which pointedly deny help to highly deserving people in the interest of apparatchiks uh, click ticking boxes. So I should think that we are in a society in which Bach would need all the help in the world, in fact. There are people who have things to say both musically and aesthetically and philosophically who don't get a chance to say them. Mm-hmm. Because the apparatchiks at the top, who, as you observe, are in the middle range intellectually, in the lower middle range, mm. uh, have decided that uh, non-intellectual reasons are the reason are why people get their work promoted. Now, it's not always the case. Mm. Uh, for example, we were very fortunate, I think, in this past truncated proms of this year, insofar as there was a proms, to have a work by Hannah Kendall, who's a composer whom I admire deeply. I think she's an amazing composer and is someone that I want to commission from and 
someone I'm very honored to also know. This is truly a fine musician. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you introduce this quota system, people are going to say Hannah Kendall is there because of diversity. No, Hannah Kendall is there because she's a good composer. But there are other people who are commissioned, maybe, maybe not by the same or, uh, institution, who are there for institutional reasons to, to please apparatchiks, people with multiple commissions over a number of years who wouldn't know a piece of music, you know, who wouldn't know a good piece of music if it bit them on, the, on, on their posterior. And yet these people are being commissioned. So, so this is the problem we have, is that at the end of the day, the people making the decisions, they're going to do what they want to do. And they're just going to change the goalposts and, and tell you and me that that's the reasons why they're doing it. And then they're going to say, oh, you know, we're in some sort of dilemma. Musicians are, no, I'm in, I'm in no dilemma. You're in no dilemma. This is just, with some exceptions, I think it's just um, sort of rhetorical, uh, you know, Hunger Games. <laughs> I was trying to think of some reference to the Hunger Games, but actually I don't know it well enough to find a joke in there, and I'm sorry. I uh, first got in touch with you because I'd been really enjoying you on Twitter, and oh yeah, I just wanted to ask basically, because a lot of musicians in your kind of you know soloist strata uh, going around the world playing concerts, we get the PR glossy, shiny version of a Twitter account where we thank the person that we've done the recording session with and we put yeah. the photo up and it's done. Are there people trying to make you more like that? Was it an active decision to just be yourself on there? It's just, it, it feels a little bit exceptional in that ecosphere to me, but I really appreciate it. That's very nice of you. I couldn't really say. Uh, yes, there's occasionally people, I can think of a couple of people who complain, but whatever their opinion mm. goes only so far. One one of those tweets that I found really lovely was you just talking about how great it was to work with Leif Segerstrom. And it felt, again, because you've got that human presence on there, it doesn't feel like the PR glossy, oh, it's lovely to work with. You know, it felt it felt real. And uh, I just wondered if you could tell us about what it's like to work with that amazing man. He's just a legend. I've never been in the same room with such a profoundly musical person. And with someone who was so generous with his musicality. You know, I basically got to have composition lessons with the guy the whole week. He's just amazing. And he's gruff and he yells and, you know, and he's ornery and whatever. You know, those are, those are just bourgeois values to make some people feel more secure. You know, he's real. He's, he's never nasty. You know, he's a good person. Lake Sigerson's a very good person. And I, mm. I just have deep respect for him. It was a very humbling, um, you know, experience, but also, you know, maybe you can think of instances in your life where someone was so brilliant that it it energized you to work harder. So, yeah, it was, I'll never forget that. I look forward to, you know, seeing him him soon. He's a little ill right now because he had to cancel a concert in Aarhus, but I, you know, I I wish him the best. I hope he gets better. Yeah, we'll keep everything crossed for him. Yeah, definitely. So hopefully a little bit more with him in the future. I know it feels like such an odd time to be planning, but have you got anything else? Hey, in we're the pipeline? planning. Yeah, we have a lot of things pl- planned. A lot of things in a lot of places planned. You know, we'll. This eventually will end. I mean, we have to plan mm. what comes afterwards. So. Great. Oh well, uh, we really look forward to seeing what you get up to next. And me uh, too. Me know. too. And you know, just we just have to say, stay safe. I know it sounds silly and it sounds cliched and it sounds cliche to say that it's cliched, <laughs> but um, 
I heard someone the other day say, um, stay positive and test negative. That's all we can do. Yeah. Hey, well, uh, thanks so much for coming on the pod oh, and giving us your time. Really, really, really thoughtful stuff. You know, I'm going to go away and chew on that for a while. <laughs> that's, that's really great. That's very um, nice of you. And um, yeah, stay safe, man. We'll talk soon. Finish! Tim, are there any noteworthy anniversaries coming up? Yes. November the 20th marks 215 years since the premiere of the first version of Beethoven's only opera, Fidelio, in French-occupied Vienna. Mm. Apparently the audience was stuffed full of French officers who were, for the most part, unimpressed because they couldn't understand the German text. Sounds familiar. And I expect Beethoven's message of liberation also came across a little tone deaf to the Viennese public, considering their state of occupation. Yeah, Yeah, awkward. Fidelio was pulled actually after just two performances with the press giving rather disparaging reviews one read there are some pretty moments in the music but it is a long way from being a complete much less a successful piece of work so a furious beethoven rewrote the opera twice and thankfully the premiere of the final version a decade later was a raging success so therein lies a lesson to us all if at first you don't succeed try try again that's something that Janacek understood very well yeah a persistent couple of fellas there a moment of rebirth as well as classical music magazine moves online thanks very much to our friend tessa for alerting us to that a really helpful resource to all sorts of people in the classical music industry now available at the touch of a fingertip. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, then please do give us a subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. And, you know, why not send us a message on Twitter or Facebook, on Instagram? We always like hearing from listeners, so don't be afraid to reach out. A big thank you to you for listening, and a big thank you to Mahan for coming and being our guest this week. Yeah.